Joe Darvash. I'm a senior fellow at Google, and I'm really pleased and honored to chair this discussion uh, with Secretary General Angel Guria and two other OECD colleagues, <laughs> with Aida, Clara Sanchez, and Pierre Payet, on the EU and on the Euro area uh, report of the OECD. The OECD has uh, these reports uh, in every second year, uh, and they have just published it today, and they have uh, launched it here at our event at Brugo, which is a very topical uh, issue. Both are very topical issue. You can find some copies um, outside, but of course you can also download it uh, from the OECD, OECD website. And I think, I mean, this time is especially relevant that we talk about both the European Union and the Euro area, not least because uh, in the EU uh, we face some major challenges, even though economic recovery has, has resumed, we see some major challenges uh, like Brexit, <coughs> we have a major productivity uh, problem, we have issues on the labor market, we have issues with migration, we have issues with structural reforms, and the EU report covers these and many other interesting areas. Uh, in the euro area, again, beyond the economic outlook and, and the moderation or the exit of, of from the uh, ex, uh, very ex, uh, expensive monetary policies of, of the ECB, we also see a moment of change now, whereby some key reforms about the euro area might be decided uh, in the coming days or weeks or months, uh, who knows. So I think it's exactly the right time uh, to discuss all of these issues. Some proposals certainly are bolder and more ambitious, some are more realistic, uh, and I think the OECD put together some great work to finding a balance between ambition and, and realism. So I'm extremely pleased to, to host uh, Secretary General Angel Guria today, uh, who will introduce these reforms. Uh, I think he doesn't need any introduction. Uh, he has been the, the Secretary General for since 2006, so, so quite some time, and I think in this period you really shaped your institutions and raised its, its standing to a very, very high level. So we're very pleased and honored to have you here today. Uh, so let me now invite you to, to give some initial remarks, and then we will have a panel discussion, and then I will open the floor for questions and comments. Well, um, thank you very much. Uh, delighted to be in Bruegel to launch the uh, economic surveys of both the European Union and the Euro area. The uh, distinction sometimes is a little artificial. It's a little strange that we present two books, you know, on the same day uh, about one area which is contained in the other area. <laughs> Uh, but this is the way the, uh, the European Commission uh, prefers, and also the Eurogroup, and, uh, and it seems to be more useful for them. So we, uh, we, we uh, do what is more useful for, for the client. Um, now, after years of crisis, growth in the EU has picked up momentum. We're projecting 2.3% in this year, uh, more or less, maybe a little bit less uh, 2.1 or something like that uh, next year. So um, EU-wide uh, unemployment, 7.1. That's uh, below its pre-crisis low. Uh, and although unemployment rates remain above the pre-crisis levels in countries like Greece, Spain, and Italy, which are still recovering, but in which all the numbers also look better, uh, but uh, the process just taking a little longer. 
The improvement of economic conditions, certainly welcome news. But of course, no room to be complacent. There are a number of downside risks. A continuation of growth in the near term, for one thing, cannot be taken for granted. Trade tensions have already dented the business confidence. And these trade tensions, as we saw yesterday, can escalate. In fact, they are escalating. You know, we started with uh, steel and aluminum and the deferral and, you know, another 60, another 30-day deferral or whatever. And then as uh, we were in the middle of the uh, ministerial council meeting of the OECD, we, uh, and we were discussing trade and all the wonderful possibilities that trade provided to create well-being, etc. We were then <laughs> told that they were uh, putting on the tariffs, you know. And so, so it was a rare privilege to be in the middle of the meeting. Um, and with the Chateau de la Muette in the back, as if we had inspired the tariffs, you know, there was a, just a... <laughs> Uh, now, what can I tell you? It, it, it creates uncertainty. Uncertainty makes policy decisions and economic decisions and investment decisions and consumption decisions to be deferred. And the deferral of these consumption and investment decisions slows down the growth. So basically, forget about the ethical and the moral and the jobs and the investments. It's basically also about jobs about recovery, and it, it, it's as we are waiting for the recovery to kind of catch up, you know, to, to, to get, get some traction, uh, just at the time when we would need uh, more uh, uh, projection and more promotion, etc., and then we get these tensions. Um, now, Europe is also aging rapidly, and productivity growth is weak. This constitutes a key medium-term challenge. I have to say everywhere productivity is weakening. In the OECD in general, we had zero, upwards of 2% productivity growth in the decade of 97 to 2007. And now from 2007 to 2017, it's been under 1% and in the Euro area, in the last few years, it's been under half a percent. So you basically are seeing a very, very serious deterioration in productivity growth. And that, of course, is a big, big challenge. Uh, our surveys on the EU and the euro area identify ways in which we could make the euro area less vulnerable um, and uh, strengthen what I would call the cohesion of the EU project which basically means more Europe, more Europe, more Europe. Huh? Um, and uh, I can say this as a non-European. Uh, I just came back from the parliament a minute ago where we were talking with the ECON in the parliament and we were saying, you know, the problem with Europe is the scaffolding. So you, you save for three years to go to Europe one day if you know, you're, you're Mexican middle class, you, finally make it to Europe and you go to the to Notre Dame or you go to Il Duomo in Milan or you go in Cologne and you find that it's covered with a black tarpaulin you know there's a the scaffolding is and you can't see the light and the, you cannot see the vitrals and you cannot and there's noise and bzzz, you know they're cleaning the thing and they 
and you are so disappointed. But then you come three years later, and it's awesome. You know, this is uh, Europe. You know, I said you you cannot you can be accused of many things, but not of being too fast. Hmm? <laughs> but at the same time, the construction of Europe is always work in progress. The institutions of Europe are always being built. They're always being strengthened. The design of Europe is always being updated, upgraded, modernized. So basically, what you have is this very inspirational, very inspired, and very ambitious work in progress. And um, well, sometimes it works better than others, and sometimes it moves faster than others. But, um, but it is still the most important integration process that we've ever seen. And it is the one that responded to our collective history in the last hundred years, and therefore of enormous consequence. And that, uh, that is why we, from the OECD, two-thirds of our membership are Europeans, you know, give a lot of importance to things Europe or Europeans or Eurozone, etc., that we're looking at. Now, what do our reports say? Well, uh, we survived the crisis. A lot of people were saying the demise, you know, this. Uh, improved the functioning, uh, but there are certain signs of fragility of the common currency. Um, we have to complete the banking union. Um, we need a fiscal backstop for the single resolution fund. Uh, a European monetary fund, perhaps, but why call it like that? I mean, it looks like a provocation. Huh? Um, you already have institutions that help countries get out of trouble, uh, and you call it uh, not very attractive ways of the European stability mechanism. They say two long names, but but it's not. No, I, I just say because the European Monetary Fund looks like it's a competition to the International Monetary Fund when it's basically a complement. And I'm sure that uh, the IMF itself would be very happy to get a little bit of help uh, to, um, support their <laughs> to support their endeavors. But um, so we need to reinforce the guarantee of bank deposits. So there needs to be a European deposit insurance. We need to break the negative feedback loop between banks and their states. So the creation of what I would call a uh, kind of a safe asset where uh, these, uh, you know, banks could uh, actually um, have investments and buy bonds, et cetera, and, but also that you do not have too much exposure to a single country, you know. Because why? Because bonds, countries, banks tend to buy the bonds of their own country. You know, so, and the problem is that they end up with very high exposures and therefore high vulnerabilities to their own country. And... How do you make that for a, a, a you know, a broader uh, uh, sharing of the risk? The second thing is about, you know, how do we avoid, or if inevitable, how do we get less impact from future crises? Um, you know, Mario Draghi said, uh, whatever it takes, uh, which uh, 
uh, gave a lot of uh, confidence to the markets. But the problem is monetary policy cannot do the trick by itself. And second, we certainly have run out of a lot of room now after monetary policy has done a lot of good. And I'm the first one to say, let's do a statue to the central banker, you know, whatever, whoever the central bank looks like. I suppose a combination of Bernanke and Janet Yellen and, um, and Jay Powell and uh, Mario Draghi. That's going to be difficult to merge, right? Uh, but uh, but the, the central bankers have done a wonderful job. The problem is they've done a wonderful job with central banking, you know, which is what they do. But the problem is, how do you move from central banking to structural change when monetary policy is already in reverse, where fiscal policy has a lot of limitations because of the question of, uh, you know, you want to reduce deficits, you want to reduce the size of the debt, and you want to bring it down, debt to GDP, the markets are more demanding all the time, you know, they're getting tougher. And the markets are starting, which is probably good, to discriminate better in terms of risk. So <clears throat> if you have a situation like that, what do you do? Go structural, go structural, go structural. And of course, go national, go national, go national. Um, so going structural, what does it mean? Well, it means education, innovation, regulations, uh, competition. It means uh, flexibility in the labor market, flexibility in the product markets. It means, um, well, uh, R&D. It means the universities, the financial system. These are the kinds of things that are going to keep the thing going um, in the medium and long term. And there's, of course, uh, the uh, integration in the capital markets. I have a statistics here that says that um, Outstanding corporate bonds uh, in the European Union are about 10% of GDP. Bonds, corporate bonds, European Union, 10% GDP. Corporate bonds, United States, 40% of GDP. So you could say the deepening of institutional uh, credit markets in um, uh, the United States, four times as much. Well, because we know, you know, with the universal banking model in Europe, it's mostly the banks do a lot of the work. But basically, that means there's a lot of development of capital markets that can still be done, the deepening, and that still is a potential. Um, now, productivity, again, productivity, productivity. Barriers and services, energy, transport, digital markets. Um, barriers of entry, barriers of exit. The churn, which means birth of companies and death of companies, is slowing down. That means less vibrant markets. Too many zombie companies that are preserved too long by the banks who just roll over the loans and not too many new companies. Why is this serious? Because zombie companies misallocate resources, but who creates the jobs? New companies. In fact, think of what happens when there are some of these mega mergers. 
You know, the first thing the two chairs or the one who bought the other one uh, announces is synergy, which means I'm going to fire 20,000 workers, you know, from the companies all over the world, and they're going to save $2 billion of, you know, of uh, salaries and whatever, and then it's going to be even more, and then they're going these are the kinds of, so where do you create the jobs? In the new companies. And the new companies mostly are small, medium, startup, etc. So there has to be, uh, a, you know, this churn, this vibrancy in the markets. Um, the regulatory burdens uh, are, are crucial. Um, when you're talking about energy sector, when you're talking about electricity, when you're talking about um, things like uh, like telecom, etc. Uh, you're basically talking regulatory cross-border. There's still small units of business all over Europe instead of one in single integrated. That will really give you the power and the technology and the big investment and the economies of scale, etc. So that still has to be done. But also, 40% of the European adults still lack digital skills. Okay, so you have underdevelopment of the capital markets, you have uh, underinvestment, you have uh, underskilling. Um, then, um, so all these things add up to productivity. Um, so, there's very specific, so no surprises here, you know, when, because we're talking about productivity like a broad, like an umbrella. But when you look at the components, then, well, you see that they're underperforming. Um, what about the EU budget? Well, we have a graph here that basically says it's going down in real terms. Uh, 1.1 or going to 1.0, maybe under the 1% now, and they're asking for one to go up to 1.3. We support the broader, stronger, somewhat broader, somewhat stronger. It's still, it doesn't even look in the graph, it's flat. It doesn't come out in the flat. I mean, 1% in the graph, you really have to make very, very detailed graphs. <laughs> the scale of the graph has to be very, you know, uh, small. So. Why? Because you, you really are, and you're asking more and more things from the Commission and from the Union. Uh, and at the same time, they're not being provided. So it sounds like the discussion of my budget at the OECD, uh, or maybe your budget here at Google, where uh, the donors, uh, the, the ones who contribute, uh, tell you that you should do more and more things, but they don't give you uh, more money. So we, we support it. Uh, uh, it's, it's, as I said, about 1%. Um, and reforming the budget has become even more urgent with the Brexit because that's a 7% gap. Um, and that is going to be difficult to compensate. Um, there's also R&D. The commission should do more R&D. Um, and there's, there's, there's some room also to reallocate. Um, I would reallocate common agricultural policy funds, for example, to digital and structural you know, changes. Um, please don't tell anybody you know, this from the agricultural. Um, but also I would allocate resources to 
the lagging regions to the question of making Europe more equal in the regions, in the different parts. You have countries where only 100 kilometers away, 200 kilometers away, there's a whole difference in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of the level of development, the level of the quality of education, the quality of healthcare, the access, the connectivity, et cetera. It's not only about the, the roads. You, know, you, you spend a lot of money on roads, you know, probably too many roads around. You know, but uh, at least uh, in, the main, in the main cities, et cetera. The problem is now you have to build other types of roads, so the, the electronic roads, the, 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 the virtual roads for the, for the uh, uh, what is it? Industrie 4.0. Huh? So um, I, I, I hope that came out naturalism. Um, then the mobility of workers. That's a very crucial question. Also, it, uh, what workers do is, you know, in the United States, it's almost like a, you live in Houston. They give you a job in Cleveland. There you go. You sell your house, and then you buy another one there. Or you, you, you know, you, you, you just cancel your rent. You go to another one. You take the bus or you take the play, whatever, and then you go and rent another one. It's a very dynamic market. Here, uh, the housing market is much less dynamic, uh, and that also creates a much uh, less mobility in terms of the, uh, uh, I said about the regional divides. This is a, a very important uh, issue because uh, there one third of the funding of Europe is about the regions. That's big. Well, it's big when you have a small budget. Small, but it's a very large percentage. But the question is, are they allocated well? Is it uh, you know, dedicated to the right kinds of things? Or is it most to physical issues rather than the preparedness of the people, the workforce, the skills, etc.? So dear friends, um, the future is becoming increasingly uncertain. Um, but Europe has shown its capacity to survive difficulties by jumping ahead when needed. So um, let me uh, finish with a short story. I was only 18, 17, 18 years old, and I was working, because in Mexico it's not uncommon, at least in, in that generation, that we would work and study at the same time. And I was beginning my economic studies in the National University of Mexico and I was working in the Federal Electricity Commission of Mexico. The Federal Electricity Commission was very modern in the sense that it was funding itself with world bank loans, and, but it was also funding itself with bond issues. This is 50 years ago. I was precocious, by the way. It's not that I'm so old. It's just, it's a, but uh, 50 years ago, the unit, the money, was European units of account. Bond issues were being issued in the remote place that was Mexico 50 years ago. Today we're better now because we beat Germany the day before yesterday, whatever, you know. But, uh, uh, but, uh, but uh, regardless of that, you know, 50 years ago, not so famous, uh, and this is one agency of the Mexican government issuing bonds in European units of account, way before the ECU and way before the EMU and way before the this, and already there was an attempt to create what was then a virtual currency. You had to calculate the interest payments with, without the uh, you know machines like today, 
uh, in 14 different currencies in order to, because they're all weighted. And of course, the Deutschmark was a big guy. The French franc and everything had to be calculated. But the point is, there was already 50 years ago, I mean, the euro is a youngster, it's a teenager. But 50 years ago, there was the attempt to create a single currency. So this is why I say you cannot accuse the Europeans of being too fast. They take their time, but when they're done, it's awesome. Thank you very much. Thank you very, very much, Secretary General. Now all the difficult questions will be, this, uh, asked, uh, will be answered by Pierre and uh, Aida. For this very insightful, I will ask the difficult questions from your colleagues, but I will also like to rely on your wisdom and ask a question from you. Please. In fact, two. One on the euro and, and one on structural reforms. Now, on the euro, um, you described also many different options for completing uh, the monetary union and, and said that more Europe, more Europe, more Europe is what needed, and also the report has a number of details. But if you would advise European leaders, what should be the priority for the reform of the euro area? What, what elements of the euro reform would you put to the first uh, places? Well, first of all, um, what created the crisis? Uh, it was the banks, you know, the financial sector. So I think, although it was in a way imported, what happened is that in the end, look at what has happened. The Americans were a lot more decisive in curing the problems. The Americans were more decisive and they threw much bigger amounts of money uh, to the banks and they consolidated, etc. And, and now, now you have probably a, a, a too big to fail problem again or bigger ones. But the banks are about 20, well, roughly 10 times more capitalized. Uh, and, 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 and you basically still in Europe are facing some cases of undercapitalization or not, or not full capitalization. And then you still have some, I would say, regional cases because we took care of Unicredit through the market. Monte de Pasque de Siena was negotiated with the European Union in the form of a precautionary uh, capitalization, which hopefully will be temporary. Hopefully, in the end, Italy will make money because if you buy when uh, you know when it's low and you sell when it's uh, better, uh, well. But then uh, they found that they had these uh, regional banks, uh, Vincenza, Veneto, etc., uh, which are going to cost them. Uh, and the question is, where do you put the deficit and all that? It's negotiation with the European Union, but. Uh, uh, then you have Portugal, which again, because of Spiritu Santo and other, uh, so you have non-performing loan issues still in, in what I would say in uh, rather distinct, very well located uh, countries. And therefore it's not any longer a, a systemic issue, I would say. But I would take care of those, I would stabilize. Uh, in Spain, we have a very good example. You know, they, they bit the bullet and they used uh, I think uh, they, they, made a, they made available 100 billion, they used 60 billion, now they're, they're paying it back. And it worked, you know, the, the banking system stabilized. And the, so I'd say the banking system, the financial system is very crucial. Better regulation, better uh, supervision, but then the question of 
integration, integration, integration. I mentioned some of the mechanisms, the, uh, the uh, st uh, stabilization mechanism, the guarantees <laughs> mechanism, that the, uh, the resolution mechanisms, etc. And you, you, you guys chip in if you, I'm leaving something out. Uh, then uh, uh, the question, of course, of the, the productivity. The productivity is a combination, as I said, of um, investment, skills, regulation, um, and, and then the governance, you know, of institutions, etc. So, uh, and, and uh, it has proven very difficult to turn it around. It's just been coming down, and it's been very difficult. Uh, and, uh, well, what do you do then to take the parts? What do you do to revive investment? That's directly related to confidence, but it's also directly related to the regulatory atmosphere, the facilities, the availability of finance, etc. cetera. Um, what do you do to deal with the skills? That's a medium-term problem. Um, what you have, if 40% of the people in Europe, of the workforce in Europe, is, not, is found not to have the necessary skills in order to match the demand of the markets, it means that a lot of the people who are working today, because you don't have 40% unemployment, are either overqualified or underqualified. And our calculation is that about a third of the people feel very uncomfortable in a heavily digitalized environment. That has to be addressed. And the other question is this digital digitalization, where you really have to go. Remember, it's not about taxing the digitals, the GAFAs. It's about a, an increasingly digitalized world, taking advantage to the greatest possible extent of the possibilities. And then uh, I would say, uh, last but not least, uh, all of these things how to be done in a context in which it is inclusive. Now, this is not a moral Pollyanna you know, saying, oh, let it be inclusive, let it be nice, let it be, you know, morally correct, you know, it's ethically correct. Yeah, all that is true. But it's also economically indispensable because, I mean, and it's politically crucial. Why did we take seven months sit in forming a government in the Netherlands? Five months of all places, five months to create a government in Germany. The latest results in Italy, the fragmentation in, in Spain, the, 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 the results in Austria, okay? Just take a look at the whole thing, huh? And then you see, it means Brexit. There are a bunch of angry people out there, mostly young people who are saying, this is not working for me. And I think this is the greatest single threat that we are facing. And I say we, because that means we, I always speak as we when I speak about Europe, so they think I'm European. Well, they don't think I'm European, but I, you know, I, they say, why does he speak of we? You know, like, because I like the Pope, you know. But it's a we believe that, uh, you know, so, but, but, but basically because, you know, this is our 
our uh, our context. But uh, basically, this is the greatest concern. People are angry, and they are producing these electoral results, and they are fragmenting the political landscape, and this is resulting in very weak, fragile, unstable coalitions. It is affecting the quality of the governance and therefore affecting the capacity of even the most enlightened leaders, even the most courageous leaders, to take the necessary decisions. Why? Because we saw it yesterday with Angela Merkel. She stood strong on a policy of migration which was then rejected by her own CSU, uh, you know, uh, coalition member. And, uh, you know, that's as close as it can get, CDU, CSU. Uh, but what happens there? Well, the fact is that she is going to have to negotiate, and she was given, I mean, she was given, like, two weeks, you know, so say, one, you know, two weeks, you know. So, so the question is, Mr. Rutte, I mean, Rutte was a fine leader. He took his country to a very good results. Two parties formed a coalition. Now he needs four. And he took seven months to form a coalition to agree on a, on a, uh, on a program of work. I mean, you're talking about uh, increasingly difficult you know, possibilities of creating coalitions. And therefore, more fragile and more unstable, more, you know, as I said, affecting so the, the capacity of decisions. This is, these are the consequences. This is not theoretical. This question of, of uh, you know, the fragmentation and of leaving people behind, it's not to make op -eds. It's affecting our governance. On that point. <clears throat> How to change that? So I think many people in this room share your assessment that indeed there are many people who are left behind even in Europe, uh, which is probably one of the most equal part of the world. But, but what can we do about it? So how can, how can governments, you know, migration is one issue. I mean, certainly migration policies, as you mentioned, was a major factor in, in Germany, perhaps in other countries. Uh, <clears throat> now, <clears throat> European Council is working on that. But if you go back deeper to, to inequalities, uh, so what can, what can governments do to reduce the number of, of angry people? Well, basically, as I said before, I think uh, the central bankers did what they could to get back the economy on its feet. Then limited room for the fiscal people, for the ministers of finance, but there is some room that they could use because they're paying less interest because of very low interest rates. So there's some room they could use without increasing the deficits. But mostly, yeah, they have to go structural. They have to go structural. They have to go structural. And there's one problem with structural. It takes time. Um, Germany is still enjoying the benefits of the Hartz reforms in by Schroeder. I mean, that was 14 years ago, 15 years ago. Um, and they decided to go for a balanced budget plus minus 0 
in 2009, in the middle of the crisis, I mean, you had to admire the Germans, you know, they got guts. In the middle of the crisis, when everybody was going, spend more, spend more, spend more, they decided to go with a balanced budget, except they decided to go with a balanced budget in 2016. But they've been moving in the direction of the balanced budget, and then they achieved the balanced budget. And now they're going for the Linder uh, 2020. But what I mean is that you have to give these, these, account, these signals, uh, you know, or a relatively uh, long period. But at the same time, you have to deal with uh, what are called phenomena that are not necessarily uh, economic in nature. Uh, you also have to deal with psychology. You have to deal with expectations. And then uh, you have to deal with uh, what, what are the issues at hand? Well, uh, you have taxes that you can use. Um, you can level the playing field when it comes to outcomes and uh, when it comes to inequality, uh, in, you know, uh, inclusive growth. You can uh, help with a very targeted and good skills program. Uh, I'll give you an example. The French have 32 billion in their budget already. They don't have to create the money to create skills and uh, to activation, you know, active labor market policies, etc. The only problem is that this is not creating any new jobs because it's already been kind of allocated to the ones who already have it and they're keeping it and they're very cozy, thank you very much, you know. To, so you need to kind of shake up the tree and reallocate that. But already there is a very large amount of the budget, you know, you can help. Um, and then there are the reforms. I mean, the reforms, the reforms, as I said, you know, hearts, Germany, shorter, frankly, I don't, you know, it's, it's not true that it's because of that that he lost the, the job. You know, it's just already he had, had 1% only margin in the last election. So maybe it was his turn to, to change, whatever it was. But anyway, they're still enjoying that. What about Spain? Well, six years ago, they took some decisions. And since three years ago, they've been creating half a million jobs per year. Then what about Italy? Three years ago, they took the decision. Renzi, the Jobs Act, l'articolo 18. And uh, they've created about a million jobs since. Um, and what about France? They didn't take the reform. They only took it now. They're going to have to wait a little bit. Already there's a bonus in the confidence. But we still have to see... You know, in the end, in, it, because it's also about implementation, implementation, implementation. It's not just about the law being put on the books. And also, you have to be careful because the legislative dentists didn't come. You have a very good law, and you're in the implementation system, and the dentist goes, and then you hand it like that. No good, you know. So, you have to be aware of the legislative dentists coming to town, they come in the middle of the night and take away the, the teeth in the form of, you know, uh, some of the left wing, right wing, whatever, every wing, you know, no wings, uh, or 
uh, or too many wings, or there you have or the private sector or whatever, or the unions. They all have their own interests and they all love to keep the privileges. And if there's going to be structural reform, let it be on the cows of my neighbor, as they say. But that's not possible. Everybody has to share in these reforms, uh, especially when you have a problem of um, sharing the wealth uh, and, uh, and sharing in the solutions. The problem we have in Europe with an aging society, with more and more of the budgets that is going to be consumed by taking care of the aging, with more and more that is going to be consumed by but just a natural evolution of a more demanding society, etc., is that, uh, of course, we have to find ways in which we have to generate more wealth, and we have to get more people to work, more the women to work, the youth to work, etc. Uh, we, we really, I mean, we can't just be talking about what's going on in Japan and Korea, because that is the mirror in which we have to look at ourselves here and here, because that is exactly what's going to happen to us. Thank you. Thank you very much for your very insightful answers. I don't want to sound pessimistic. Uh, and I don't want to sound optimistic either. I, I just want to sound activistic. Huh? <laughs> so push everybody to action. <laughs> now let's talk about two specific issues before I, I open the floor with, with your colleagues on, on some of the specifics. And maybe we, we start with the, with the Monetary Union, uh, with Pierre Bainet, who is a, a head of division at the, at the OECD Economics Department. So one of the proposals which, which included in the, in the report is the Common European Unemployment Reinsurance System. So could you describe briefly, and I but intentionally look at, my, look at my watch because I would like to offer the opportunity to everyone to ask questions, uh, what is indeed the proposal itself? Um, how it, would, how it would avoid the typical problems which is mentioned, for example, permanent transfers from, from let's say, Germany to Italy, which is, which is sometimes feared, uh, and how can be it introduced? Okay, does it work? Yeah. Thank you very much. So just maybe the starting point where we come from, I mean, uh, in the Euroia report, uh, the main issue we have is like how to avoid the next crisis. I mean, the crisis will come one day in the euro, for sure. I mean, there will be a next crisis. But how to avoid that it destroys the euro area? And so the starting point is like, what can be known next time there is a big crisis? I mean, can we count on domestic fiscal policy, a national fiscal policy? I mean, now the debt level is very high, and uh, it's going down progressively only. So we have a very strong, I mean, key recommendation in our report that countries should really use the good time now to try to reduce debt as fast as possible. Uh, without derailing the recovery, so that we have some uh, margin next time the crisis hits to uh, increase the deficit and support the economy. Uh, but this will be, we believe, quite limited. We have the monetary policy, we said that uh, it's overburdened. So we don't believe, I mean, uh, maybe the ECB will start normalizing at one point, but maybe by the time the next crisis hits, it will not be in a situation where the ECB could again give so much boost to the economy as it did uh, last time. And then we have the private sector, which is also helping in case of big crisis. We saw like a lot of unemployed in Spain, in Germany, in Italy. They are moving in place where there are more dynamism, so there are a lot of these people going to Germany. So it's kind of a private natural solidarity, but it's also limited in Europe. People don't move that much. 
we mentioned the capital markets that are not so de developed. So that's why we, we thought we need another instrument. And this other instrument has been proposed not just by us. I mean, uh, it's like an idea that is uh, up in the air and for some time. And the IMF had a proposal. The commission had a proposal just recently about an investment protection fund. And we have our proposal also. So it's um, just showing different kind of proposals, which is focusing more on unemployment benefit, benefit reinsurance scheme. And so maybe I can show just a few slides uh, to describe maybe if uh, I can take the to describe how it could work. I mean, uh, I don't know if somebody can put the PowerPoint, uh, otherwise I will explain with the PowerPoint, but if there is... Um, yeah, I just explained yeah, it. Uh, so those who took the, the PowerPoint presentation, there is at least one, one uh, there. Um, the idea is like, unemployment is a... You want to? You want, no, I don't need, that's a, thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah, this one. Maybe for those who have it, I can tell you which... Ah, okay, good. Oh, you got it. I just need to talk a bit more and then it comes. Okay, okay so... So... How does it work? This? Okay. Okay. So, so the idea is like, during the crisis, I mean, we want also Europe to be closer to people. So that's also why we focus on, on unemployment reinsurance scheme. So we want uh, for jobless people to to benefit from uh, from more solidarity. And we also believe that this kind of uh, spending, uh, the, the, the impact on the activity is very high because jobless people tend to be people who have like a difficulty to live, of course. And so if you give them more money, they will spend it. It's good for growth. And so what, what we propose is a scheme because we don't want also to, to harmonize, because each country can have different way of uh, dealing with the uh, labor market. We don't want to create permanent transfer between countries because we know that it will be difficult for some country to accept. So that's why we, we, our scheme is like a reinsurance scheme. So basically, if a country is hit by a big shock, so it will work only in very, uh, the scheme we are simulating, it's some parameter we decide. I mean, it's just to illustrate how it would work. Huh? It's not like uh, the parameter I would mention are not what we really propose to be put in place in reality, but just give an idea of how it could work and what could be the, uh, the benefit. So we would say like if a country has like unemployment above, above a long-term average and also increasing above a certain threshold, so we don't want for small increase of un un unemployment the scheme to be activated, so it has to be for big shock, they will get 1% of GDP transfer. So actually what we decided in the menu simulate is like you have an increase of unemployment of one percentage point, you will get 1% percentage of GDP of help from this scheme. So it's quite big. And you can see in this first figure I'm going to show, I have four slides, so it will be relatively quick. So you can see that in 2009, you had the big shock. So the, the line in blue is what really happened to GDP. And with our scheme, you can see that the, the, the impact of the shock overall for the full area was much smaller, like about one percentage less. In the next second crisis in 2011, 2012, and up to 13, when we have the double depreciation in Europe, you can see again the, the green line, which is uh, above the, the blue line. So the scheme is very good at smoothing activity. And of course, later, growth will be a bit smaller because the purpose of this scheme is not to, to be in permanent deficit, is not to lead to any transfer. So there is a mechanism in our scheme to repay. So once, once a country gets uh, money, then the other country, after it reaches a certain amount of deficit, they will start to repay. And actually, also because we don't want country to abuse the scheme, we have also uh, some kind of penalties for countries that grow too many times, then they will start to repay a bit more than the countries that never grow. 
so what does it uh, okay so the question next is like some countries we say okay it's always we know the the, the culprit it will only be like uh, the countries that used to be in trouble like uh, some called the club med in a bit a pejorative way that will get the money and what is interesting in our, in our scheme you can see in these figures is that all countries will benefit from it so of course you can see on the left that is mainly Ireland, Portugal, Spain, Greece, that in our simulation got the biggest amount of money, 5% of GDP. By the way, why 5% of GDP? Because in our scheme, we decided to cap the amount so that it doesn't get too high. Right. On the right, sorry, yeah, on the right. Uh, on the right of the, of, the, of the graph. But in the middle, you already have Netherlands, which is getting as much as Italy. And then you have Germany, which is getting almost 3% of GDP. And then, even further on the, on the left, you have also Finland, which is getting 1% of GDP. This is the total amount during the period when we simulated this scheme. So we started in 2002. We did, we did it retroactively to see what would have happened from 2002 to 2016. So during this period, we had two big crises. I mean, uh, we had the recession of uh, 2003, and then we have later 2004, and then we have the big, uh, the Great Recession. And we can see that all European countries would have benefited from this scheme. Now, uh, the period of time when they would have benefited of this scheme would have been quite different. So this is a selection of the countries. So you can see that Germany would have benefited many at the beginning, in 2004. If you remember, that was the time was France, Germany, and Luxembourg got a lie to get rid of the fiscal savvy of the, of the whole of the pact to get an exemption. And, uh, but at that time, Germany would have got a big support from this scheme. And if you look at the blue line of Germany, Completely, if you go completely on the right, you can see that the money that Germany would have got in 2004 would have been repaid by now. Spain would have got a lot of money very quickly, and that's also a bit of the feature of the labor market in Spain. I mean, unemployment, Spain has a very uh, flexible, I mean, um, because they rely a lot of short-term contracts, so unemployment is really jumping very quickly. So Spain would have got money much, much, much faster than Italy. So if you look at Spain compared to Italy, Italy is a green light. Green, green line, Italy would have got money much later. And then you can, and then Spain, you can see, is capped at 5% because this is a feature we put in the scheme to avoid that a country gets too much. So I didn't show Portugal, but Portugal would have been capped also. And uh, you can see that uh, Austria, which is a dotted line, as another, another example of a country which would have drawn from the scheme several times uh, during the big uh, recession and also before, and uh, then uh, go back progressively to zero. And overall, just to finish my the first summary of this uh, of this work, which should be published in July, so those interested can uh, can look at the working paper when it gets published. You can see that the fund is going going into negative, of course, because all during this period we had two big crises. So, but the the deficit of this fund would be only two percent. I mean, uh, some could say that two percent is big, but it's overall, if you look at uh, uh, I mean, it's it's not huge. I mean, it's not something that Europe cannot afford to to finance. And every time after a crisis, the fund returned progressively to zero. So you can see in 2004, 2005, and 2013, it go back. So still, in the simulation, it's still minus one. Of course, it's not back to an equilibrium, but this was an exceptional crisis. So uh, except if you keep having this kind of very big crisis, it will be yeah. So it's financed by, uh, by borrowing. Uh, and then, so the, 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 uh, yeah, the mechanism, the scheme is a fund that could, uh, that could borrow money. 
Like could issue bonds, which could be uh, maybe useful also if you want to create a European uh, bonds later. But uh, and then, it's, and then uh, once it's, but it's, there are also contribution from countries to, uh, to uh, so it, both mechanism works. So it's financed by borrowing, but at the beginning especially, but then it, but then contribute back. Yeah, exactly. Because uh, the way, I mean, I don't want to enter into too much into technicalities, but the, the way we did it, we initially the fund has no money, and countries don't contribute if there is no event. So the fund is basically inactive if there is no recession. As soon as there is a recession, they get money, the fund borrows, and then the country start paying back later. That's, uh, I mean, I very much like the idea of borrowing because I think that's that's I mean clearly necessary if you want an effective fund. And this idea is also, I think, relatively straightforward and and might help its acceptance that there is no cross-country transfers in, in the long term. Now, very very shortly to to Aida Kadra, uh, who's a senior economist at the, at the OECD Economics Department, but I have to mention that she was a research assistant at Bruegel in 2007. So I'm, perfect. I'm, I'm very pleased to have you here again. <laughs> so on uh, just just one question on the EU budget and the, and the regional funds. <clears throat> also, Secretary General mentioned that this is a time of reforming the funds, and he, he also highlighted the importance of supporting uh, the poorer regions in in Europe. So so one question is clearly uh, <clears throat> whether the existing um, policy of cohesion policy how effective. It was according to, to your assessment. I mean, I read many, many papers, and I have to say I find very different outcomes. So some say that find that, oh, there's a big, big effect, especially if, if we simulate a model. If, if more empirical studies typically find, I think, that the impact is more questionable. Some find that the impact is only lasts for the short term, but, but vanishes after, so it doesn't raise the long-term <coughs> level or, or, or growth. So one issue, and the, so that the crucial issue, since you had the negotiations, how to reform, how to change it. So maybe I just wanted to show one slide to motivate why this is important. So if I can get up my own slides here. I'm sure the slides will come. Okay, just, just so because as I think what is important to realize is that uh, Europe is now growing, but we are not growing together in the sense that uh, the crisis not only reduced the convergence across countries, but also reduced the convergence among regions. So while until the financial crisis we could see that disparities in GDP per capita across European regions uh, were following, falling, now after the crisis they are starting to diverge again. So that's why it is important to now, I mean the, the discussion on the budget gives us an opportunity to rethink the, the cohesion policy, but also very topical because we see these deep divergences increasing. And now uh, you were asking, uh, as the Secretary General said, uh, regional policy absorbs a substantial amount of money uh, from the budget, it's about one third. You very well said that there are many studies that looked at the impact of the structural funds, and I have to say that the results are quite mixed. So, uh, so yes, they have contributed to convergence, but sufficiently so given the amount of money that are being dedicated to this well the question is out there so uh, in the report what we propose is that we need to rethink cohesion policy going forward there's going to be less money possibly for for a regional policy because uh, 
well, we will have to, there are other priorities uh, that need to be financed. We have migration, we have other issues on the defense, other issues on the table. So the important thing in view of this increasing divergence is that regions that are lagging behind should receive most of the funding. At the moment, this is not the case. About 25% of cohesion spending is going to relatively richer regions. So we think that the money should go to the regions that did it most. And then in terms of the targeting of spending. So um, at the moment, um, money is it's true that it's mostly allocated to growth enhancing policies. But is it also true that it's very much dispersed in the sense that cohesion policy has many objectives, uh, including climate change, including greening the economy. Those are important challenges, but they should be, you know, they should be managed through another tool. Regional policies should be, should be dedicated to fostering convergence across regions. So most of the money should go to investment in education, in innovation, uh, in cross-border linkages, which are the policies that are going to foster long-term growth. And then in terms of, uh, of spending, um, there's the question of whether um, spending is always done with uh, an economic rationale in mind. So what we see is that uh, spending typically takes, it takes quite some time for the structural funds to be spent. Typically that most spent at the end of the funding period, so at the end of the seven years, and there's a rush to spend the money without perhaps not looking so carefully at how the money is spent. So here we think that it would be important to consider whether there's a need to increase the co-financing by countries, by member states, so they pay more attention to how the money is spent. And then another message that I think, um, as you were saying, it's important that we know whether the policy is delivering. I think it's important that there's more analysis on how the money is spent and also to recognize that there are um, mistakes in the way how the money is spent. I mean, always, it's not always done in the best way. So in some cases, there's lack of competition uh, in the attribution of the funds, and there should be a strengthening of the, of the capacity, exactly, of the capacity of the member states to uh, allocate the money. Implementation errors by the European Court of Auditors. So these are 29% serious. Uh, 49% significant and 22% minor errors. The problem with this is not that they're errors. People err, you know, people make mistakes. The problem is that this is used to then have a, to then have a, a kind of a, um, a excuses uh, to, you know, by countries not to provide the necessary um, support. So, um, you, 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 you get a copy because I see that you would like to have a copy. You're com complaining that you don't have a copy, so you, you too, you get a copy. Okay. I think there are some other copies outside as well. So. Yeah, well, maybe they ran out. <laughs> okay, so if we, if, we, if we try to translate your assessment to an evaluation of the Commission proposal, some aspects you probably welcome, for example, the increase in national co-financing, but some aspects you probably don't welcome, namely that they continue to want to use this policy also for the most developed regions, uh, and also that they wish to include not just GDP per capita as a key indicator, but also like climate change and other indicators. As you said, they should be 
in principle, should be financed from other funds. But now let me, let me open the floor now for, for questions and comments. We still have half an hour. So if you would like to ask a question or comment, please raise your hand. I ask you to first briefly introduce yourself and also try to have your comment or question rather brief, if possible. Mr. Secretary General, it was fascinating uh, to listen to you. You spoke about trade, but you did not mention WTO. All the discussions we have about WTO, can they have the effect that the importance of your organization will grow as far as trade is concerned? Thank you. We are very happy to work with the WTO and for the WTO. They are responsible of the trade discussions. They are the place where the appellate court exists. Uh, and uh, when it comes to trade, we have a trade committee. We have created the global value chain concept in terms of looking at the micro numbers of the global value chains. We have created and discovered, not discovered, but necessarily put numbers, values on the trade in value added flows. Today we can calculate the flows up to 2015. I think we're going to come out with numbers for 2016 very soon. This is massive number crunching. This is why we're talking about two years behind or a little bit like that. Uh, but this is with numbers from uh, 10,000, 15,000, 20,000, 30,000 companies. So we're no longer talking about macroeconomic numbers and, and uh, you know, national accounts analysis. We're talking about micro numbers. And basically, uh, what you have is that, uh, so uh, global value chains, trade and value added services. STRI, the Services Trade Restrictiveness Index. We created that. And we actually can give the German Minister of the Economy, Mr. Almeyer, we can give it to the Australian Minister of Finance, we can give it to the Turkish Minister of Economy, we can give it to the Mexican Minister of the Economy, one page saying, these are the 20 sectors, and this is how good you are on those 20 sector services. This is the average for the OECD. Are you below or above the average? And this is the best performance in each sector. Are you above or you know, below the best performer? So if you are above the average, you can move to the average. That's a policy decision. If you are, but also, are you restrictive in couriers? Or are you restrictive in allowing lawyers, or are you restricting allowing doctors, or are you restricting allowing railways? It's not the same, okay? And so, basically, services and then trade facilitation indicators. Trade facilitation was signed in Bali. It was the only thing that happened there, and we haven't had too many things happen at the WTO since, because of the members, not, nothing with the WTO. So what happened? Well, we now have indicators. Because if we cannot measure it, we cannot manage it. So what are we doing with the, with the WTO and for the WTO? Doing the analytical and 
numbers and number crunching and doing things that will help them. I like to say, this is when we talk about the is structural, the, 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 the sustainable development goals or the climate. We, you know, we aspire to the Oscar. We want to get the Oscar for, you know. But there's a best movie, best director, you know, best actress. But there's also best supporting cast. Huh? And we aspire to be best supporting cast to the WTO. We understand that they are the ones who go first. It's not a competition. And we don't do the same things. We help them, we support them, we're happy to play a supporting role, but we're also, when we bring out our numbers, for example, on services, we bring out blueprints with the detailed numbers, and basically, they whisper in the ear. We give you the graph and say, do you like what you see about yourself? So we give you a mirror and say, look at yourself in the mirror. Do you like what you see? Preferably naked, you know. Uh, and if you don't like what you see, as a where would you like to, you know, improve the, the photo? This is our relation with the WTO. Yeah. Thank you. <coughs> Lady there, please. <coughs> Hello, I'm Elena Burkhol from the Parliament. Um, I would like to uh, ask about this. Um, you referred for, in the beginning that the productivity growth in the euro area has been extremely low. So there seems to have been a permanent productivity shock to the euro area. And yet the reform seems to be focused more on consumption smoothing and business cycles. And for instance, this uh, European unemployment uh, insurance scheme uh, that would, um, of course, uh, ease perhaps a little bit the deficits, but it would still uh, encourage the unemployed to, can you hear me? Uh, the unemployed to remain in the region, which is some of, as you said, are very uh, far behind and very permanent in their uh, problems. Uh, that would encourage them not to move after work, plus uh, it would, um, uh, and, and as such, um, it could uh, raise long-term unemployment, which would in turn uh, weigh on uh, budget deficits okay. and, and, uh, and so the competitiveness problem is not solved with it, it's actually, it may worsen it. So uh, the, the key issue seems to be how to restore the competitiveness of the lagging regions. And that I have heard very few uh, suggestions on how to solve that. And uh, um, I, my question is, uh, do you think that the euro uh, is very much the problem here as uh, without it, this would have been solved long, 10 years ago, these issues? Thank you. I can answer the question on uh, unemployment. I mean, this is the idea of this scheme is we are not going to change the way people are get uh, uh, unemployment benefits. So the, the incentive will not be different. I mean, they, they will get what in each country you have some right you accumulate when you work and then you get a benefit. The problem is that during crisis, because countries are losing revenue, they may to keep either like review uh, this benefit negatively, which happened in some countries. So, for example, they reduce the, the period in which people could get benefits, 
which is very bad because in terms of crisis, uh, you, you should have the time to get a job that is fitting your qualification. No? If you're an engineer, you, if you don't want in the long term growth, we are talking about slow productivity, but if you're an engineer is forced to become a taxi driver, after a few years, you'll not be able to be an engineer anymore. So you want the person that lost a, lost a job as an engineer to have enough time to find a new job as an engineer. So that's the purpose of the non-primary. It is very important to keep. And all the government, alternatively, if they keep paying an unemployment benefit to people, because they are losing revenue, they will cut somewhere else, they will cut investment, and that's we saw a lot during the crisis as they cut investment, which is also very bad for growth in the future. So the purpose of our scheme is not at all to, uh, to say, okay, these people will not move. I mean, they will still have the same incentive to move because the benefit will not be permanent and they, uh, they will decrease over time, so unemployed people will have to, to find a new job. But what we don't want is like, either the government force, force them to find a new job too fast, even faster than before, or that they cut spending elsewhere that will deteriorate growth in the long term, uh, like uh, needing investment, and uh, that's frequently what happens during crisis, like government tend to cut investment too much. So. The, the, the question of the moral hazard, which you were mentioning also, I think uh, it's a question of calibration. Uh, there are different minimum wages in countries. Uh, there are different uh, benefit schemes in countries. Um, and the question is, how do you, as uh, Pierre says, how do you make sure that the country is not cutting on the benefits in the time of crisis, but at the same time, uh, the question of calibrating the benefits of unemployment in order not to discourage the appetite to go and seek employment are quite clear, you know, in the sense that we've been practicing that for a long, long time. I have to say there are still some countries, perhaps even the one which hosting uh, these uh, very important institution uh, in, in, the, uh, in, in Belgium, where the question of moving from uh, the education to the unemployment was almost a professional move. Because, uh, you know, because uh, the benefits were quite uh, generous. But I think that has been, you know, uh, gradually uh, uh, calibrated so that it is less so. And then there is something else. I mean, there is not just a question of whether you get the same amount of money or not. But, you know, being in a job brings with it a quality that is not just the revenue, but also a certain sense of belonging, a certain sense of dignity, a certain sense of ownership, um, which is not, you know, uh, equivalent to where you get uh, uh, unemployment benefits. Uh, but when you're talking about peso by peso or dollar by dollar or euro by euro, the question of not having a, uh, a moral hazard issue is real. Uh, but I find that very, very few countries really are in a situation where you, you pay so much for being unemployed that you are uh, discouraging people seeking employment. And if that were the case, you should avoid it. You know, you should recalibrate the numbers. Um, You talked about the digital tax a little bit today in your parliament testimony, and I wanted to press you on that a little bit. You say that there is this 
report that you're supposed to have done by 2020 and now you're thinking of uh, or wanting to have it done now by 2019, but that would presume that there's a global consensus on this issue, which I don't really think there is right now. I mean, can you explain how this would come about or how confident you are that there will be a consensus by next year? Thank you. Okay, this is um, like when you have a convention of uh, stand-up comedians and somebody says 18 and everybody laughs, you know, because everybody knows the joke. So maybe just for the benefit of your question, there's a little bit of background. Um, because this is a, what I would call an expert's question. And also because you had the benefit of being in the, in the earlier session in the parliament. Uh, what is the issue here? We have been very successful in taxing individuals who had escaped the tax man or tax woman. Uh, why? Because now there are 149 countries, actually 150 countries, that have actually enlisted in something called the Global Forum on Tax Transparency of Financial Accounts. And that means that starting last September, last September, it's on day, 53 countries or something like that started exchanging information automatically, which means you create an account in a tax haven or formerly a tax haven, and the bank is now legally obliged to deliver to the authority of that country. And the authority of that country is legally obliged to send to the country of origin of that person the whole information. So your name ends up in the tax man's desk, no matter what. And this September in 2018, in a few months' time, 60 more countries will join, so there'll be nowhere to hide. It means a revolution. It means that you no longer have to send the photo when you were shooting your mother in order to be able to get you know, the country to send you the information. It also means that if you reported the account that you created in the Cayman Islands or in Panama, or whatever. Well, that's fine. You reported the revenue from the interest or the gains from the capital account. But if you didn't, you will be invited to have a cup of tea or to change your uniform for one that is stripes along like that. This is dramatic. And it's so dramatic and so credible that already 92 billion euros, which is about 110 billion dollars, have been recovered by all your collective, including this country and the country next door and the other country and the other country, by the exchequers, by the treasuries. Because so many people have come to say, Mr. Taxman, in the hypothetical case that a hypothetical citizen of this hypothetical country would have created a hypothetical account in a hypothetical tax haven, 
What could we do about it? Oh, well, I could hypothetically put you in jail or something, you know, et cetera. So, but maybe you don't want to go to jail. How about a normalization, a regularization period? So they have created these windows of opportunity. Those are the ones who have received 110 billion in revenue, not in disclosed assets. The disclosed assets numbers are 20 times higher. I don't know how many trillions. Just, just Indonesian money in Singapore, I think was maybe about 300 billion or something like that. So you're talking about huge amounts of money who had been leaving their countries for ages and that are deposited everywhere in the world. And now they're simply saying, well, you had to pay tax on it, didn't you know? Well, please don't put me in jail. I'll... The taxman does not want to put people in jail. They want to collect money. Maybe you have, for that, I mean, I was a former minister of finance, I'm a former minister of finance. Maybe you had to put a few people in jail to prove what can happen if you don't, you know. But, so you choose a very famous football player, a very famous rock and roll singer, a very famous uh, telenovela artist or something like that. And you can almost just say, did, 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 and they will, they will be liable because nobody pays the taxes. In them. So, well, basically, well, that was some time ago, hopefully. The, more, the morale is better today. But what is happening? This is for individuals. Then BEPS, base erosion and profit shifting. Multinationals. The potential to raise money every year from taxing the multinational, just, just having them apply the normal rate of tax to the normal uh, your, your results that they have country by country, when you break down country by country, you can't take everything. No more double Irish, no more double Dutch, no more double this, no more double that, okay? You saw when Margaret Festeger put this fine on Apple for 13 billion, they had paid 0.05%, not bad. 1 20th of 1% tax rate, not bad. Huh? So, but then there is the question of the digital. So if you produce furniture, if you produce suits, if you produce shoes, if you produce cars, it's easy to tax you. What if you produce vibrations, you know, uh, photos, whatever, just, it's in the air, and you don't even have to have an office anywhere, which is the basic fundamental, the physical presence leads you to tax. No more need. It can be Singapore, it can be in New York, it can be in Mexico, it can be in Turkey. You just send the products and they're sold and you can do billions without being there. So how do you tax digital? How do you tax? What do you tax in digital? Where do you tax in digital? How much do you tax in digital? All very relevant issues. Do you apply the so-called, you know, transfer, the transfer pricing principle? Do you apply the arm's length, which means who is equal to Google? Well, what other comparable Googles are there? What other comparables Apple are there? How are the comparables? What about? Uh, so basically, uh, 
Taxing digital uh, is a big problem because the way in which we have been preparing to tax and avoid and uh, evasion and, tax, and, and uh, the avoidance of taxation does not allow us, does not equip us. And at the same time, you're the Minister of Finance, and you're watching your economy, and your economy is 100, okay? And then 10% becomes digital, and that's kind of drifting out of your control. And then 20% becomes digital. 25% becomes digital. 30% becomes digital. And you're not taxing that thing. Then your base is 70% only. Either you're going to have to increase the tax, or you have to do something about the 30%. Why should the 30% not be taxed? The only problem is the 30% doesn't look like anything that is in the books. But they should be taxed. They must be taxed. They make hundreds of billions. They're the five largest companies. They're the 10 largest companies, bigger than all the oil companies and bigger than the automobile companies, etc. So how do you go about it? This is at stake. And you are perfectly right. What I said to the parliament this morning is, I wrote a report to the G20 last March saying, I am writing you with a story about a disagreement. We have not agreed on how we should tax the digital. And the problem, sir, is not taxing four companies or six companies or Alibaba and Tencent and Baidu and China. It's about taxing an increasingly digitalized world, an increasingly digitalized economy, and which is no blueprints, no, no, no footprints. You know, just. And then, how do you do this that is fair? How do you do this that is fair to the other competitors? How do you do this that is fair to the other players? And also because to the extent that these guys start inter intervening in businesses, which the others are doing, and you have the others captive with some perimeters, with some borders, but these guys are in the ether. Big issue. So the European Union put out a directive, 3% on turnover. The Americans are not in the same club, but they're opening up and they're, they have a very open mind in terms of possible solutions. The, the, the British went for some imputed, assumed tax level based on total uh, turnover in, in the UK, which you have to determine more or less, or calculation, etc. So basically, you, you, you do not have all the instruments that are necessary. And you basically do not have a single view or a single concept, a single criterion on which to tax digital today. 
This is what is in discussion. Now, you rightly say that they asked the OECD to produce a report in 2020. And you also rightly say, and this is the reality of my misery today, um, everybody's saying, either you come up with a blueprint faster or I will go my own way. And say, well, listen, I'm only the OECD. You go to whatever, your own way, you know. You, you fix yourself up with the United States, with China, and with Japan or whatever it is. The only problem is that it doesn't work like that because basically imagine that not all the countries were playing the game of nowhere to hide. That there was still a place that was a tax haven. All the money would go there. Well, here, if you have a place that is not taxing digital, all the digital will go. And, and also you do that with a click of a button. You don't even have to move any office or anything like that. Uh, so the, the thing is there have to be homogeneous concept, concepts and legal definitions of what it is that we're trying to. Also, Google is not Amazon. But Amazon is not Microsoft. And I, uh, Microsoft is not Apple. They do different things. How do you tax them, you know, each one of them? And where do you tax them? And which rate do you apply? This country has higher rates than the United States. So you have somebody to choose. Well, they choose going to the United States. But how does this compare with Denmark? Or how does this compare with France? Or so, but in the end, it's about where you make the money. If you do 100 out of France, and 100 out of Germany, and 100 out of Italy, and 100 out of Belgium, then you should tax at the Belgium rate, at the Italian rate, at the French rate, and at the German rate, whatever amount of profit is generated. But the problem is if you're taxing turnover, then you're not looking at profit. So the whole logic of what the income tax is about is turned around on its head, basically because you don't have the technical elements to determine the profit. So you can see why, dear friends, people are not agreeing. You can see why it's not easy. It's about the right to allocate. It's the allocation of the right to tax. There are some countries that say, I'm universal taxation, therefore bring all the money here, and some others that will say uh, the companies will pay wherever they are. And so basically, it's a country by country allocation that you would really want the breakdown of where you actually make the money that should be done, but how do you how do you determine that? And then how do you discount from the profit whatever the mother company in Seattle or in China or wherever is going to be charging or collecting for intellectual property, for marketing rights, for this, for that? And that has to be reasonable, quote unquote. But then what is reasonable? Who wrote the algorithm? And then who sells the product? But first you have to have the algorithm. If the algorithm was written in Seattle or in New York or in San Francisco, 
then that is what is going to drive the whole thing. The, the, the rest will be, you know, uh, mechanics and economics and marketing. So it's an enormously complex, very frustrating and sometimes a nightmare job. But as they say in the army, somebody has to do it. And hopefully we will. Thank you very much. There were some two other questions indicated, but I'm afraid we are over time. Sorry about that. So, <clears throat> but I, I see. I to blame. <laughs> no, 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 no. I think we are all impressed by your wisdom and, and your very clear thoughts and, and uh, expressing this very complex problem of, of taxing digital uh, incomes uh, in, in a very clear and, and um, understandable way. So I think everybody benefited from that. So my last job is to thank you very, very much for coming, for sharing your thoughts with us, also for your two colleagues with very interesting discussions. And first of all, for all the bright papers that you produce, so I invite you all of you to read them. It's really worthwhile to read. <coughs> thank you. <laughs> so please join me and let me thank Secretary General. Thank you.